Episode 3, Linda with a Y. What you're about to hear is an incident that occurred during my time as a state police officer. Based on a true and factual event, some details were changed due to security and confidentiality reasons, but not in a way to affect the veracity of the story. With him firmly trapped in a headlock, she reached around and plunged the steak knife into his neck. Even with the sharp blade embedded into the side of him, there wasn't a single reaction from Norm, verbal or otherwise. We watched as she pulled the knife out, tightened her grip around his neck and began to drag him backwards inside the securely locked house and out of our view. I feel it's fair to say the average person thinks that on any given day, the role of a police officer is exciting and action-packed. Hate to burst your bubble, but it's not, as the vast majority of law enforcement work is spent tediously patrolling your patch of dirt, and if you're not doing that, you're filling out paperwork. Patrolling is one of those necessary evils of performing the role. A lot of coppers refer to it as Operation Aimless. You just drive around aimlessly, up and down streets to fly the flag, as we say, all in the hope the local shit in the area see you and are deterred from committing a crime. But it does go off at times, and when it does, it normally presents something of substance, significance, or an opportunity to make some change and do something worthy, so you grab it with both hands. I have always preferred patrolling one up rather than having a partner. It's not that I enjoy talking to myself, which invariably I end up doing. It's mainly because I have an issue trusting others. I understand that may sound a little screwed up, but when you consider the nature of my profession, I've been burnt, let down and sold out on far too many occasions. Besides, without sounding conceited, I can well and truly handle myself. And in the past 30 years, I'd had very few issues or concerns. So let's get to the story at hand. It was sometime midweek and I was working a morning shift doing a fair bit of the up and down stuff. There had been nothing of any substance on the police radio except for the mundane jobs like returning a wallet, dealing with a minor accident, attending at an address to get someone to contact their long lost brother from another mother whose cousin had done something. I mean, spare me. Who really cares for that less interesting stuff? However, something finally came over the channel that piqued my interest. A request was made for a second unit to support the local sedan who were responding to the report of a domestic situation that appeared to be turning violent. A call taker had answered a call where someone was heard in the background screaming out for police. And as I was close to the location and needed something to break the boredom, I responded to their request. So five or so minutes later, I pulled up a couple of doors away from the address where the other unit was waiting. I shook the hand of Mick, who was the senior member on the other vehicle, and the most senior of the three of us there. Mick would have been around 55, and he would have served some 35 years in the force. Being a long-termer, and very experienced, a lot of us affectionately referred to him as the old-timer, or a crusty old Connie. But to look at him, you'd think his greatest accomplishment as a copper was eating donuts. And around 5 foot 10, he'd eaten way too many, and his gut now hung out over the front of his belt, not only signifying he was clearly unfit, in my book, it looked very unprofessional. But regardless, I'd known Mick for a long time, and I liked him. I respected the fact that when someone puts in that many years, they would have seen and done it all, and in this job, experience is everything. I had come to know him as the old school type copper, 
and still believed in dishing out a little bit of summary justice. You know, the clip over the back of the head sort of thing that's alleged not to hurt anyone. His partner Rob, the polar opposite. Young, maybe 19, 20, and a couple of days fresh out of the academy. He was an easy six foot three, definitely the fittest and the most keen of us. Experience had shown me the newer you were to the force, the stronger the mentality that you joined to make a difference. He'd be, let's get in there, let's deal with this, and we can change the world into a better place. Little did he know, and a hell of a lot did he have to learn, as Mick and I, on the other hand, a lot more experienced, a lot more reserved, with the healthier attitude of, let's just hang around here for a moment, we'll see where this is going, then we'll go in guns blazing. Metaphorically, of course. As we walked to the address, Mick gave me a short briefing, as was the norm. Over the past few weeks, regular calls had been received for police attendance, and therefore the two occupants of the house were known to them. We were told the last time police had attended the address was last night, by the night shift. Funnily enough, it was to referee some sort of domestic. That job last night proved that there were no threats or concerns and no one had been arrested or injured. In this profession, it pays to know any history as being forearmed is definitely being forewarned. At this point, let me say that you can be the smartest person out there, but when it comes to policing, nothing substitutes experience. It's amazing what each and every experience teaches you, but to benefit fully from it, you need to learn what to take notice of and what to do with the experience learned. You need to be switched on, always. The single level cream brick house was set halfway down a gently sloping block. I was pleased to see it had complied with the local government requirements of having the mandatory rusting car body on the front lawn. It had a fairly steep drive and there was an empty carport halfway down. There was a low picket fence at the end of the driveway with a partly open gate which presented as a good point of exit if required. It had a low set concrete porch, no hand railing, large windows with the curtains drawn to the right of the front door which could potentially be a lounge room. To the left of the door was another set of smaller windows, more than likely to be a bedroom. My overall guess, a very typical three bedroom layout. Four bedrooms to the left, living area on the right, kitchen or meals area towards the rear. All of this important information to know, as we were to find out. On the porch I stayed a couple of steps behind me, Rob positioned to the side of me and away from the door. I was conscious of the fact Rob was new and inexperienced, so I had to deliberately position myself, just to keep him in my peripheral. He would need a bit of protecting in his first few weeks, and would also have to do the bulk of his thinking for him. So using a little police technique, Mick gave the door a light tug just to check to see if it was locked, which it was. He gave it a firm, gentle knock, but there was no response. He stepped it up and used the side of his fist to bang a fair bit harder. Fuck off, was the unpolite and yet expected response that came from deep inside the house. Mick called out it was the police and asked for someone to come to the door. But, not surprisingly, that request received the exact same response as before. Now, not unlike most cobbers, Mick doesn't suffer falls and he immediately headed off towards the direction of the driveway, Rob and I in tow. I could see he was already frustrated with the direction this was heading, but, as is the unwritten rule of police etiquette when you're dealing with an offender, never come over the top of your colleague. There is one exception to that rule. You're allowed to come over the top if it's to provide an extra fist. I was more than happy Mick had self-appointed himself to run this job, as was Rob. In my case, I was following etiquette. Rob was following the instruction he would have received day one as a trainee at his station, 
say nothing, go nowhere, and only do what you're told. So halfway down the driveway and under the carport was a set of windows. They were set up fairly high in the building. One of the windows was partly wound out. Behind that window waiting for us was one and a half people. Off to the right stood what may have been a 30 or maybe even a 40 year old female. It was difficult to say as her face was heavily weathered and her eyes were dark and partly closed. She had messy light brown hair that spilled over her face. All of this making it difficult to determine her exact age. We could only see the top half of whoever it was to her right as she had them in a headlock and was leaning forcibly upon them, pushing their head down. Clearly under the influence of something, she was visibly swaying. She struggled to keep her balance and as soon as she saw us approach, she let fly. Now I'm as good a swearer as the best of them, but wow, could she dish it out. That tirade was laced with a fantastic variety and a brilliant depth of swear words. I can't say there were any I hadn't heard before, but I was impressed with the vengeance in which it was delivered, as it was an angry spitting and a hateful diatribe. However, if you were to take out every second and third word, which was either fuck or the C word, which even I struggle to say, there was nothing meaningful in what she said. Meant correctly, let her vent until it started to become too repetitive. Now, as he was focusing on her, I tried to work out who was in the headlock because strangely, they didn't appear to be offering any resistance. I listened to Mick start out with the standard textbook phrases. It's not that bad. Let me help. What can I do? Etc. Yeah, good luck with that, Mick. It's all yours. I don't think Mick fully understood. He was trying to instill reason, sensibility, and rational thoughts into what was obviously a pissed and more than likely drug-affected, incoherent, irrational female, who, by the way, had someone in a headlock. So as every minute went by, I was becoming ever more pleased that Mick had chose to run with it. She started to bang on about Norm, the boyfriend, who I now assume was the one in the headlock. I picked out every third word and determined her complaint centred around him. Apparently, according to her, he sits on the couch all day doing nothing. Mind you, that's a drug user's code for. He sits around all day smoking bongs. He won't do the shopping code again for. He won't go out and pick up the dope when it's close to running out. He won't clean up around the house. Again code for he spills the bong water and never cleans it up. And on and on she went, repeating it all in circles. Now at this point, it was sort of travelling okay until all of it got the better of Mick and he pressed the wrong button. It went something like this. Mick, trying to interrupt. Listen, honey, just calm down a little bit. The response? You fat motherfucker copper, don't call me honey. My fucking name is Linda. Linda with the fucking Y. Mick. Okay, it's Linda with a Y. If you calm down, we can help you. Just let go of Norm. So this is when she reached across and came back with a small, black-handled steak knife in her left hand. I'll fucking kill him, she threatened, waving the knife in the air behind the glass. Mick, come on, Linda, don't be silly. Put it down. Fuck you. I'll kill the useless prick, you motherfucker. Now, it's at this point I'm going to say, this is where it went pear-shaped. You know you won't do that, says Mick. Looking challengingly at Mick, she moved the knife across the front of her and plunged it into the left side of Norm's neck. Then... With her drug-fucked eyes still locked angrily on Mick, 
She pulled it out and dragged him back into the body of the house and out of our sight. Apart from Mick saying fuck, there was nothing else that needed to be said and the three of us ran down the driveway to the open gate. We literally skidded through the gate and turned left into the backyard and headed towards the back door as we knew the front door to be locked. We could see it at the top of a dozen or so stairs and it had a steel security door in front of it. But now, with a sense of urgency, Mick puffed his way up the stairs only to find it was locked. Shit. The three of us then ran back to the driveway and to the window under the carport. Linda wasn't to be seen. And with the window still partly open, we could hear her screaming from inside the house that she was going to kill Norm and all the laziness that came with him. As she had clearly shown the propensity to potentially follow through with such an action, we now had serious concerns for Norm. Immediate action was needed, but what and how? Smash a window at the front was Rob's reasonable suggestion. Kick down a door or somehow get in through the roof were another two thrown around. Let's dose her with the capsicum spray was mine. If we can coax her back to the window, we can hit her with all three of our sprays through the gap. That might work, agreed Mick. Let's give it a go. So the three of us pushed ourselves up against the wall under the window and unclipped our sprays. Now it was my turn. Hey, Linda, you fucking useless slut. Come back to the window. I'll take you on. Okay, in reflection, I'm not all that proud of my language, but there's nothing like a good taunt to someone who's pissed and irrational, particularly when it achieves the desired result. Screaming something about killing us along with Norm, we could hear her stomping her way back to the window. As she couldn't see us under the window, she stupidly, yet fortuitously, leant down near the open gap and began to spout her a response. Absolute perfect. We released the total contents of all three canisters through the gap and into the house. Now, capsicum spray is a nasty, nasty, yet brilliant piece of equipment, and it can be applied in two ways. The preference is for a primary strike, where the spray makes direct contact with the face. The other option, which is more common, is a secondary spray where it's absorbed by walking through or near it. It was always best to aim for a primary hit, but you had to be very careful with its use as it doesn't work on everyone. A good example of this was a number of years ago when a colleague of mine sprayed an offender coming at him with a knife from the inside of a house. He had to resort to his firearm when it became obvious the spray had zero effect. And yet, the autopsy found the offender had heavily ingested the spray as his lungs were full of it. Let me remind you about experience and being switched on. Beneficially for us, Linda copped a primary and a secondary, and it had immediate effect as the swearing was replaced with coughing mixed with panic screaming. As we ran to the front door, Mick made a request for the Ambos to attend over the police radio and for additional police as we were going to conduct a forced entry. Now, as Rob was the biggest and the fittest, I stood back and pointed at the front door instructing him to kick it down. He gave it a mighty kick and it rattled, but it didn't give. He then took two steps back and charged at it with his left shoulder. It smashed open and the three of us burst inside. Is it dangerous to do a forced house entry without conducting proper surveillance and arming yourself with everything you need to know about the layout and those inside? Yes, it is. Do a lot of those precautionary investigations and inquiries need to go out the window when you watch someone being stabbed? Yes, they do. However, in this rare situation, 
we found ourselves going in blind in more ways than one. No sooner had we entered, a residual secondary spray hit us, and it hit us hard. Our eyes immediately began to water, our throats closing over, making it difficult to breathe. It has been documented some people may even shit and piss themselves from the exposure. But either way, it disorientates and confuses you, and as we only had a general idea of the layout and which way to go, I thought back on my earlier observations and had it right. Experience got the better of Rob, and in reflection I, or Mick, should have considered this. He followed through after smashing the door open with his shoulder and went through the entrance first. More than likely due to the momentum, he ran straight ahead and headed down a short hallway. I went in second with Mick close behind, and we moved past a small nib wall and turned right into what was, as I had guessed, a lounge room. We both ran in, in a crouch fashion, exactly why I don't know, as managing exposure to capsicum spray, it's not like dealing with fire smoke where you're best to keep as low as possible. In this situation, there's no escape from the spray, regardless of your body position. Heavily hacking and coughing, we found Linda in the middle of the room, leaning over the back of a couch, Norm still amazingly in a firm headlock draped next to her. She was frantically waving the knife above her head, and Mick grabbed her wrist, bending it backwards, forcing her to drop it. I pried her right arm from around Norm's neck, and both of us pulled her away from the couch. Together, we then dragged her out of the lounge room, through the front door, crossed the porch to the grass, and dumped her on the ground. Overcome by our own exposure to the spray, Mick and I bent over, attempting to slow the coughing long enough to suck in some air. My eyes were a pool of stinging fluid, and my previous experience with capsicum spray had taught me not to touch or rub them. I then heard Rob stumble out onto the porch, also coughing heavily. I took a quick look at him and saw that he too was bent over, hands on his knees, desperately trying not to rub his eyes if we'd been trained. It was only then, at that point, that it struck me. Where was Norm? I ran back to the front door, tugging at Rob's arm as I ran past. Now, credit where credit's due, the young, inexperienced trainee quickly and unquestioningly responded. Together, we ran back inside, and he followed me into the lounge room, where we found Norm still draped over the back of the couch, not moving. The worst-case scenario flashed through my mind. Not only had he been stabbed, we'd forgotten him, and he didn't appear to have moved an inch. I grabbed hold of his right arm, Robbie's left, and we dragged him out of the lounge room into the front lawn, where he too was dumped on the grass, next to a now handcuffed and vomiting Linda. This time I dropped to my knees, coughing and spluttering, and feeling a hell of a lot worse than the first time. I looked across at Norm lying on his back on the grass next to me, and I thought the worst. Fuck me. His eyes were wide open, and he was staring unblinkingly straight at me. I noticed there was a small pool of red blood at the top of the white singlet he was wearing, as it had absorbed the smallest of trickle of blood from his neck. With his eyes locked on me, he gave the smallest of coughs and smacked his lips as if he was tasting the capsicum. I could hear the sirens of the backup units and ambulances arriving, so I swayed my way over to Mick, who I found lying under the front garden tap the cold water pouring onto his face and eyes. Giving way to me, he took a dog's bowl of water over to Linda and poured it onto her face, partly to provide her relief and partly to drown the screaming and swearing. 
I just lay under the tap and let the water pour all over me. The Ambos checked over Norm and found the puncture wound to his neck was small and superficial. Regardless of the severity of his injury, I feel we got it right. Linda's demeanour was erratic and unpredictable, and had she been left alone with Norm, it could very well have been a different result. Recommendations were put forward for bravery awards, but two of us refused any recognition. Yes, we did do a good job that day, but in my book, that's all we did. We just did our job. Now, as an end note, I've been told by local members that Norm and Linda with a Y are still happily cohabitating with each other to this day. Bugger me.